this is historian explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And if you become a patron at any level, you'll have access to my last myth of the month, which was on the notion of the founding fathers. But now I'm going to go back to a topic which was actually the subject of my doctoral research, and that is Freemasonry in the 18th century. And the reason why the 18th century is so important when we talk about Freemasonry is because that's the time when it first grew and flowered and spread really across much of the world as an international movement and first became influential. And what I'm going to talk about now is how it grew and spread and developed in that formative early period. And I'm going to cut it off basically at the French Revolution. I'm not going to get just yet into exactly how Freemasonry became entangled in the different revolutionary movements in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. So I'm going to stop basically at 1789 and leave most of that off for another time because there's so much to understand about how Freemasonry became so influential and widespread in the first place. So previously, about a year and a half or so ago, I gave a lecture on the core myths and rituals of Freemasonry. And I also discussed the early beginnings as well, a little bit. So if you want to know about the mythology, the teachings, the ritual practices, which are really the sort of universal core of Freemasonry, I'll link back to that previous lecture. But what I'm going to talk about now is Freemasonry more as an institution and a movement and how it worked and how it moved from place to place and social group to social group. So as I mentioned, I already discussed a little bit the early roots, the origins of Freemasonry. And just to sort of briefly summarize and recap, Freemasonry evolved initially out of the gatherings of actual stonemasons at building sites in late medieval Europe, particularly late medieval Britain. Then in the 1590s and early 1600s, the Scottish royal government under James VI and his master of works, William Shaw, started to put forward so-called statutes, rules and procedures for the governance of the building craft in Scotland, which drew on the already existing lodges and their customs and organization, but made them more regularized and transferable. And then this sort of updated late Renaissance Scottish version of masonry, or as it was sometimes called at that time, Freemasonry, then made its way southward into England. So really the emergence of Freemasonry as a, a social club and movement for gentlemen, for sort of literate men, not just actual working stonemasons, that transformation began first in Scotland, but then really took off and accelerated in England, particularly in London. And if you read academic histories of Freemasonry or even Mason's own histories of the craft, as they call it, they tend to begin with the year 1717, 
which is the traditional early date for the creation of the first so-called Grand Lodge, a kind of consolidated headquarters for the Masons in London which was put together by as a, a joint project of four lodges in London who met at a pub called the Goose and Gridiron Pub and started to draw up plans and constitutions for a Grand Lodge in 1717. This new Grand Lodge that formed in London had a sort of core cadre of active leaders. They drew on prominent noblemen, men connected to the royal court to sort of give prestige, but the people really running the institution tended to be kind of, you could say, mid-level intellectuals, natural philosophers, scientists, clergy, particularly a scientist or natural philosopher called John T. de Sagulier, who was known as a student of electricity and was of Huguenot extraction. And then shortly after the constitutions for this Grand Lodge and for Freemasonry in general, under the leadership of this new Grand Lodge, were published by a minister named James Anderson, who actually was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in London. And he had come from Aberdeen in Scotland, and his father had been one of the leaders of the very old Mason's Lodge in Aberdeen. So Anderson probably knew some of the old teachings, folklore, and practices of those lodges in Scotland, but he was putting them into a kind of easy, regularized form to be used by this new rapidly proliferating movement and these multiplying lodges around London and even now beyond London. So his Constitutions of the Freemasons was published in 1723. And this book, Constitutions, it was reprinted Several years later, it was very popular. It spread. It was brought around the country and abroad to the colonies and to other countries. And it set forth a very simple set of rules for the creation of new lodges, the election of Masonic officers, including the standard offices of worshipful master, senior warden, junior warden, secretary, and treasurer. And it set forth a sort of loose, broad set of moral ideals that Freemasonry was supposedly intended to cultivate. And there are certain passages in this section of Anderson's Constitutions that are very famous and that have been reproduced and quoted over and over again. And they are often taken as a sort of basic canonical representation of what Freemasonry was about and of why people became Freemasons and what it meant to them, at least at this early time in the 18th century. Now, I would caution that that's probably over-exaggerated, that in fact, different people thought of Freemasonry in different ways, and that really the, the actual core is in the rituals and the mythology. But nonetheless, Anderson's constitutions were undoubtedly very influential. And Anderson, for one thing, had to approach the very sensitive and difficult topics of religion and politics. And this idea that religion and politics are the sort of two topics you shouldn't broach in polite society 
that really comes in large part from Anderson's constitutions. You can trace that back to this early kind of Masonic manifesto. And the idea that Anderson puts forth that that there is a kind of universal, broad, vague, ethical religion that everyone can agree on while leaving aside these difficult questions that he labels as religion and politics. So according to Anderson, the Masonic belief system and the Masonic ethos is supposed to be tolerant, inclusive, and it makes an appeal to a so-called natural religion, which was not a unique idea. This was a, an emerging, increasingly common idea among the sort of genteel classes in the late 16, early 1700s. And Anderson says, quote, A mason is obliged by his tenure to obey the moral law. And if he rightly understands the art, he will never be a stupid atheist nor an irreligious libertine. So it's interesting here, Anderson doesn't specifically say there's a rule that we exclude atheists, but he just says, well, of course, if someone is a good mason who understands the art correctly, then he won't be an atheist. And he goes on, quote, But though in ancient times masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, yet tis now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves. That is, to be good men and true, men of honor and honesty, by whatever denominations or persuasions that may be distinguished, whereby masonry becomes the center of union and the means of conciliating true friendship among persons that must have remained at a perpetual distance. End quote. So you can see here, for one thing, Anderson is acknowledging that social and political conditions have changed in his own time, and that at least in Britain, there's increasing accommodation of a variety of religious views and opinions. And that somehow some kind of civil society has to function in the absence of religious uniformity. So he's saying previously it might have been expedient to, to enjoin all Masons to adhere to the state religion. Now, in 1723, it's better to simply leave denominational questions to the individual and emphasize a sort of broad, you could say, easy, watered-down, ethical creed, right? Just be, be good. <laughs> so on the one hand, Freemasonry's kind of inclusive, tolerant ethos was just an adjustment to the conditions of that time, of the 18th century in Britain. But also you could say there's an effort here to try to construct something more substantive that avoids the particular dividing lines and flashpoints that had caused religious conflict previously. And likewise with political questions or questions of the state. So Anderson says, as for obedience to the civil authorities, he says, quote, no private piques or quarrels must be brought within the door of the lodge, far less any quarrels about religion or nations or state policy, we being only as masons of the Catholic religion above mentioned. So he's saying here, Catholic in the sense of universal and inclusive. We are also of all nations, tongues, kindreds, and languages, and are resolved against all politics, as what never yet conducted to the welfare of the lodge, nor ever will. 
So he's using politics here again in a kind of narrow sense. So when he talks about religion, he's saying the things that divide different denominations and churches and cause bad feelings. And likewise, with politics, he's saying we're going to leave out these controversial questions. And clearly there are issues about parliamentary supremacy, about issues like the Riot Act and triennial elections that the Masons just didn't want to disrupt ideal harmony of Masonic lodges. So they're simply labeling those things as politics and putting them outside the door of the lodge. So it's pretty clear that the creation of this Grand Lodge and the publication of the constitutions were an effort by certain circles of Masons, some of them fairly prominent, to put forward a sort of positive, non-threatening, welcoming face to this new movement that was showing up and becoming visible and controversial, really, on the London social scene. And at the same time that the constitutions were being published and distributed, there were anti-Masonic pamphlets and letters appearing in newspapers, sort of questioning and denouncing this strange, secretive fraternity. So... A lot of these kind of messages that seek to define and represent what Freemasonry is about, we always have to remember that they're in this context of suspicion and controversy and that they're putting forward a sort of non-threatening face. And the other strategy that went hand in hand with this sort of public presentation of Freemasonry was seeking of high status patrons. And many prominent noblemen, many servants of the crown were recruited and joined the Masons, and some became really active leaders of Freemasonry in these early years in the 1720s and 30s. And of course, the, the big grand prize that any social club or group wanted was royal patronage. That was the best thing you could get for your own prestige and your political safety was to get royal patrons. And the Freemasons accomplished this in 1737 when they initiated the Prince of Wales, Frederick Lewis. And he was initiated in a lodge led by John de Segulier, that natural philosopher, that Huguenot-born natural philosopher that I mentioned earlier. So that was a big coup, and it was not the end. It established something of a pattern. And later in the century, in the 1780s, Henry Frederick, the Duke of Cumberland, who was son of King George III, became the Grand Master of this Grand Lodge at London. So this was an even greater mark of prestige and prominence. And he was replaced a few years later in 1792 by Prince George, the Prince of Wales, who then later became King George IV. So George IV, eventually, when he took the throne, he became the first Mason king. So, you know, the Prince of Wales, Frederick Lewis, who was initiated back in 1737, he was expected to become king, but he died before his father did. So it took till later in the 19th century to get a Mason king. But by that time, really, Freemasonry had become tightly tied into the establishment ruling circles in Britain and became really married to royal power and state power more than it really ever was in any other country. 
So this Grand Lodge of England, in some respects at least, it was a great success, and it really tied Freemasonry into the, the inner circles of prestige and power in London and Westminster. But fairly early on, it was followed by other Grand Lodges in other dominions of the British Crown. So another Grand Lodge was organized in Ireland in 1725, drawing on the numerous lodges that had already been there for many years in Ireland, many of them dating back to before 1717, and then a bit later in Scotland in 1736. And that might have taken a little longer because Freemasonry was really even deeper rooted in Scotland, going back, as I said, to the 1590s. And the lodges there were pretty comfortable and wedded to their processes and their customs. And many of them were, the, the lodges themselves were very defensive of their status and equality and didn't like the idea of a new, larger, higher authoritative body presiding over them. But they saw the advantages of having a Grand Lodge like existed in England and Ireland, so they formed a Grand Lodge in 1736. And in a lot of ways, this was just a parallel development following the lead of the London group. But also these new Grand Lodges in Ireland and Scotland could sometimes also be a rival to the so-called Grand Lodge of England, especially as Freemasonry began to spread out to the growing British colonies abroad it could be ambiguous. You know, if you are in a British domain somewhere across the sea in, say, Gibraltar or India or the Caribbean, what sort of authority is there? Does any Grand Lodge have authority over Masonic activities in these colonies? Is it the Grand Lodge of England at London or is it the Grand Lodge of Scotland or Ireland? Or can you pick and choose? These sort of ambiguities would come up and complicate the organization of Freemasonry abroad. So clearly one of the reasons why these Grand Lodges formed in the first place in England, Ireland, and Scotland was because sailors, royal officials, soldiers, colonists, merchants were starting to bring the practices of Freemasonry, including Anderson's constitutions, out to this rapidly expanding empire as Britain quickly emerged as the premier maritime and imperial power of Europe. And people wanted to know who was a legitimate Mason, what constituted a legitimate Masonic lodge, and there was a demand for some kind of standardization in headquarters. And once these Grand Lodges were formed, it facilitated and coordinated communication, organization, standardization. So as the British Navy grew and the empire expanded, people from, especially from London, brought Freemasonry abroad to the colonial empire and colonial outposts, and they shared it with friends and associates who then tended to self-organize and form their own kind of improvised lodges. And then once they had done that, they then reached inward and sent messages back to London to ask for a charter. This was a process that was not controlled and planned by the Grand Lodges. Rather, these Grand Lodges just provided a source of legitimation to the Lodges and thus, by extension, to the members of these overseas Lodges when they traveled to other colonies or back to Britain. 
that could demonstrate that they were legitimate or so-called regular Masons with the right to visit or join other lodges. So Freemasonry was becoming this kind of mobile network of contacts. And the Grand Lodges did not oversee this process. They simply gave standards of legitimacy. So some of the early overseas outposts we know of in British domains include at Gibraltar in 1727, when some soldiers at the British garrison formed their own lodge. Just a few years later, another group at Fort William in Calcutta in India formed a lodge in 1730. So the expansion of the British East India Company and their troops and their agents also became uh, vectors for the spread of Freemasonry. And once these sort of military outpost lodges, like at Gibraltar and Calcutta, were established, then they could act as sort of seeding mechanisms where they might bring in civilian colonists, maybe British colonists, maybe other Europeans, and then sometimes also the local population. And the, the craft or the art, as it was called, would expand and eventually distinct groups would hive off and form their own lodges. So each of these lodges abroad tended to spawn many more. Most of these lodges that were warranted in some way by the Grand Lodge of England at London, but also some occasionally would get warrants from Scotland or Ireland. So it could depend on what was the makeup and the extraction of these soldiers and sailors and colonists in these various outposts, and also their political relationships. Were there political controversies or just social rivalries that made it easier or more difficult to get a warrant from this or that Grand Lodge? Now, North America is probably where Freemasonry spread the fastest of any of these overseas British domains. And there was, for one thing, just a bigger population of English-speaking people to draw on than there was in India or Gibraltar, for instance. And a lot of them were of the right sort of social type or social group to become Freemasons, self-supporting, upwardly mobile, literate men. So lodges had formed at both Boston and Philadelphia by about 1730. Not all of the internal records survive, so we can't know very much specifically in detail, but clearly there were some in both of those towns by the early 1730s. And one of them obtained a charter to call itself the Provincial Grand Lodge, and that was a lodge at Boston in 1733. So now the question is arising, as lodges proliferate in North America, don't the colonies need their own Grand Lodge to oversee this process of growth and standardization? Why should they have to keep communicating back and forth to London? But naturally, the, the Grand Lodge of England wouldn't want to give up their primacy as the ultimate governing body of English masonry. So the compromise was to recognize this body in Boston as a so-called provincial Grand Lodge. And that precedent would then be followed in other colonies, places like Jamaica would also set up their own provincial Grand Lodges. So after 1733, we know that lodges proliferated in the port towns up and down the Atlantic coast. And by about 1760, 
There was a lodge in every sizable town in British North America from Savannah to Halifax. Most of them sprung up in the 1730s and 40s, but there were a few stragglers in a few colonies like Delaware that didn't come along until the 1750s. And likewise in the British Caribbean, the earliest known definitely documented lodge in the West Indies was at Antigua in 1738, and a year later, another called the Mother Lodge of Jamaica was formed at Kingston, Jamaica in 1739. And the basically the spread continued to the point that if you were a British sailor or traveling merchant or colonial agent, and you were moving from colony to colony, port to port, as was common, you could find a Masonic Lodge basically to any town you went in the British Empire. And it was overwhelmingly a body of English-speaking European men, whether British or Irish or sometimes in some cases French, especially French Huguenots, Dutch. All of these sorts of men could be found in these lodges. Now, the question that, of course, arose was, what about all of these non-European men? Are they eligible? Are they acceptable? Can they join the lodges as well? What if they have some money? What if they have some education, as some of them did? And as the 18th century went on, it became common for small numbers of indigenous elite men to also join these Masonic lodges. And the... The issue was that these lodges might be very reluctant and cautious about whom they allow in, but once you initiate a certain number of men from a certain social group, what happens is those men can then walk out of the lodge, initiate their friends and associates, and then the movement spreads into a new population. Now, some early instances of non-European men joining Freemasonry emerged during the years of the American Revolution in the 1770s. And in these cases, in these more prominent cases, it was actually a kind of official act where very powerful British officials who were Masons chose to initiate particular men from local indigenous elites as a kind of diplomatic stratagem to cement Britain's alliances with particular elites. And one famous example of that was the initiation of an Iroquois sachem, a leading, highly respected sachem of the Iroquois Confederacy named Joseph Brandt, who was an ally of Britain during the conflict with the American colonies. So in many ways, this was a strategic and symbolic gesture, and it was only performed for this one very prominent individual, but naturally it started a process whereby Freemasonry then could spread into the indigenous American community, and over time it became fairly common and and successful among Native Americans. In the same year, also in 1776, British East India Company officials in India initiated the sons of a local ruler called the Nawab Bahadur. And the Nawab Bahadur and his family were Muslim. So in a way, you could say it didn't present as big a religious question as initiating, say, a a Hindu ruler who was polytheistic. Uh, You know, the, the biblical figures that are referred to in Masonic myth and ritual, like King Solomon, are recognized in Islam 
But it was kind of the first time that prominent known Masons made an intentional effort to bring in Muslim elites into Freemasonry, and it also would spread in the Islamic world. There was also a slightly different case, which happened in Boston during the American Revolution. The traditional date for a long time when people believed that this crossover initiation happened was in 1775, but according to more recent research by John Hairston, it seems it was actually 1778. And in that year, during the Revolutionary War, a group of African Americans in Boston, led particularly by a prominent tradesman and organizer, named Prince Hall, approached an Irish defector who had been part of the British military forces occupying Boston, but then defected and returned to Boston. They approached him and obtained Masonic initiation. From that point, they then were, they found that they were not welcome and were not included in the white Masonic lodges in Boston. So instead, they formed their own lodge, which they called African Lodge, and obtained a charter from the Grand Lodge of England. And from that point onward, Freemasonry spread among the African-American community. And it still exists today as a sort of special branch with its own history and traditions called Prince Hall Freemasonry. So in all of these ways, you can see that Starting in the 1770s, Freemasonry crossed these barriers of color and also to some degree religion and started to develop in its own directions and its own channels outside of British or European control. Now, at the same time that Freemasonry was rapidly spreading and starting to diversify throughout the British Empire, it also crossed over and grew in continental Europe. And the conditions in continental Europe were different. It was not as tolerated in many countries in Europe as it was in Great Britain. It faced different challenges. It sometimes drew on different, more marginal or underground social networks. But it developed and in, in different ways took on important roles and became influential in many different countries in Europe, as well as in different colonial empires. And often there was there were sort of complicated overlapping loops of spread and exchange among Masons in Britain, in other European countries, in the British colonies, and in other European colonies. So in continental Europe, Freemasonry tended to spread particularly strongly among three social groups. For one thing, those with close contacts with Britain and interest in British ideas and practices. So that could include merchants, diplomats, intellectuals, and these sorts of networks that often were interested in certain British ideas like parliamentary governance in the new natural science exemplified by the Royal Society and could see Freemasonry as a way of kind of borrowing and replanting and reseeding those ideas. Secondly, those with mystical and esoteric interests. So those who studied occult arts like alchemy and who were interested in the mythology and the esoteric symbolism of Freemasonry and often could match it up and intercombine it with their own mystical and esoteric traditions. 
And thirdly, those who already belonged to existing organizations of stonemasons, which might have many practices and ideas in common with British Freemasonry. And the biggest example of that is the Compagnonage, the very old organization sort of guild of stonemasons and builders in France, which had a similar history going back to the Middle Ages. So these three groups, these sort of, you could say, Anglophiles, esoteric thinkers, and stonemasons, all brought Freemasonry in to different places and different social spheres, and then it proliferated from there, especially among the military and among the literate middle classes in the cities. And what tended to happen is first a lodge would appear among people who had some kind of connection to Britain, then it would spread, other lodges would hive off, and after about 10 or 12 years, a grand lodge would form. So many countries, uh, France, Spain, formed their own grand lodges in parallel to those of England, Scotland, and Ireland. So the first country where we know for sure that a lodge organized on, in continental Europe was France. And the first definitely known documented lodge formed at Paris, mainly among British Jacobite exiles. And I'll talk more later about the Jacobites, because this is a very important and complicated thread in the development of Freemasonry, is this connection to Jacobitism. But just in brief, the Jacobites were the supporters of the exiled Catholic Stuart dynasty that had been overthrown in Britain in the Glorious Revolution. And many of their supporters, which included many British Catholics, went abroad to Catholic Europe, especially to France. And so the first known transplantation of British-style Freemasonry to the continent was due to this Jacobite diaspora, which led to a lodge in Paris in 1725. And from there, Freemasonry also spread to the French West Indies, uh, probably brought both by French soldiers and sailors and also by visiting British merchants and diplomats. And the earliest definite lodges we know of were in Martinique and Saint-Domingue, which existed by definitely no later than 1745. The next country to adopt Freemasonry closely on the heels of France was Spain. A lodge was formed in Madrid in 1727. It met at a hotel in Madrid and was presided over by the Duke of Wart, so a high-status, prominent British nobleman and writer who had formerly been the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of England, but had gone abroad to Spain, partly again because of his Jacobite sympathies. A few years after that, we know that temp at least temporary lodge gatherings were being held in the Netherlands by no later than 1731. The first permanent established lodge in the Netherlands was at The Hague. It was called the Lodge of L'Union Royale, a royal union, established in 1734. And it also spread then to the Dutch colonies, especially in the West Indies. And there was definitely a lodge at St. Eustatius, the, Dutch, uh, I the island in the Dutch Caribbean, by no later than 1770. And shortly after that, it also spread to the Cape Colony, the Dutch colony in what's now South Africa. And there was a lodge at the Cape of Good Hope, 
established in 1772. So next after the Netherlands was probably Italy. The, the records and the details are very sketchy about Italy. It's possible there are references to a lodge existing at Girifalco, a port town in Calabria in southern Italy, beginning in 1723, but it's not proved. The first definite documented lodge formed at Florence in 1732, and around the same time, a lodge also formed in St. Petersburg in Russia. And between 1732 and 34, there was a lodge presided over by a Scottish mercenary a military officer who had been brought to Russia as part of Peter the Great's uh, westernizing and modernizing reforms. Just a year later in Scandinavia, the first known lodge was formed at Stockholm in Sweden in 1735, and it was called St. Andrews. And what you'll tend to find is the largest number of 18th century lodges were called either St. John's, as both St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist were both patron saints of masonry, or very often St. Andrews, who is the patron saint of Scotland. So what tends to happen is lodges called St. Andrews were usually organized by Scottish exiles of some sort. So that's probably the case with St. Andrews at Stockholm. The same pattern would happen also in Boston, a lodge called St. Andrews organized mainly by Scots. In the same year, the first known lodge in Portugal was formed at Lisbon in 1735, and it was organized primarily among Protestant expatriates in Lisbon. So this is a slightly different pattern, which also would happen, rather than, say, British Jacobite Catholics who went abroad forming a lodge. Sometimes some group of of Protestants from various countries in Northern Europe or local Protestant uh, dissidents would organize and form a Masonic lodge. A few years later in Germany, the first known Masonic Lodge was established at Hamburg, which of course was a major port town, which it would continue to be for centuries after. And that one was formed 1737. In Poland, the first known lodge called Three Brothers was founded at Warsaw in 1744. So this began, as far as we know, the spread of Freemasonry into the sort of broader Eastern Europe in that large area between Germany and Italy on the one hand and Russia on the other, and it would grow and become quite popular also in Hungary. Now, the southern Balkans, if we go down as far as as Greece and Bulgaria, those areas, of course, were under the rule of the Ottoman Empire and Islamic Turkish Empire, although it had a diverse population with many Christian and Jewish communities. And we don't know much for certain about the spread of Freemasonry in the Ottoman Empire, but it certainly did begin in the 1700s. The empire prohibited Freemasonry in its domains in 1748. They probably saw it as insidious, possibly disloyal foreign influence. That's how many governments viewed it. But as historians always say, you don't bother banning something unless somebody is doing it. So there are hints and indications that Freemasonry was already taking hold, especially among the Christian communities in the Ottoman Empire. There probably was a Scottish lodge held for a time at Alexandretta 
in Syria beginning in 1753, but the first definitely recorded lodge in the Ottoman domains was at Izmir, a port town on the Aegean Sea, and it was started by French Freemasons from Marseille in 1760. Probably shortly after that, Freemasonry started to make initial inroads also into the Spanish colonies in America. Reportedly, Freemasonry was brought into Cuba during the brief British occupation of Cuba in the 1760s, in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. But after the British withdrew, it went deep underground because it was illegal still in in the Spanish Indies. And not much is known about Masonic activities in Spanish America until after 1800, when it really blew up very quickly. And most likely it was being practiced in some way, unofficially and secretly, before that time. So who were these people? What sort of people were becoming Freemasons in the 18th century and spreading this set of beliefs and practices and creating new lodges all around Europe and the European colonies? Well, broadly speaking, there were some common patterns. There were particular feeder networks, you could say, that already existed and that could easily transmit Freemasonry and bring in new recruits. For one thing, commercial networks, people often invited in and initiated their trading partners and business partners. And Freemasonry on one level could serve as a way of kind of reaffirming and undergirding the relationship of trust and loyalty that you wanted to have with your commercial partners in this kind of fluid Wild West situation of maritime trade. There also were, of course, familial networks. People could invite in their brothers, their cousins and kin, Sometimes uh, fathers initiated their sons or uncles, their nephews, but especially often when Freemasonry spread and traveled along family lines, it was through marriage relationships. So even more often, at least in my research, what I found is that even more often than a Mason initiating his son, he might initiate his son-in-law or his grandson-in-law. And so a lot like business partnerships, Freemasonry could be seen to kind of reaffirm the looser relationship of kinship through marriage. People who didn't necessarily already have those ties of blood would join lodges together as a way of kind of cementing their social relationships through business or trade or marriage. Also, of course, a huge feeder network for Freemasonry was the military, including both the armies and the navies. And the it seems Freemasonry could spread very quickly, especially among men aboard ship <laughs> who had to deal with each other and get to know each other over many months, whether they wanted to or not. So voyages, which included over 100 men, could establish certain relationships, affinities, intimacies, and then Freemasonry could sort of travel through those relationships. But I found that most often when you look at military forces, like army units, it seems that Freemasonry tended to travel more often upward through the ranks which might be a little counterintuitive, that you might think that a prominent man like a general or a colonel 
might be a mason and then he would recruit his underlings but and that did happen certainly but more often it would go the opposite way and there are many instances where sort of literate educated men like secretaries or commissaries would join and then they would bring in higher level commanding officers into the lodge after them possibly as a way of kind of cementing the prestige and gaining more respectable patronage for the lodge. Also, there were religious networks. So different religious groups responded to Freemasonry in very different ways. First and foremost, Freemasonry had a really close tie to the Anglican Church. And many of the prominent Masons in the 18th century included Anglican clergy even many bishops. So this was the sort of first fact that everyone could see about Freemasonry's place on the British landscape is that it was very much embedded into English gentry society, which was largely Anglican, and also it tied itself to outposts of Anglicanism in the colonies. So it was popular among the Anglican gentry in Virginia and Jamaica. It also recruited many, many men, including clergy, from the small Anglican communities in New England, in places like Boston and Newport. Now, secondly to that, it also included many Jews. So it seems that Jewish men in England and then in the colonies started joining Freemasonry as early as the 1720s. And there are indications, I would say there's some pretty good evidence that Freemasonry was also being practiced in some Jewish communities in the Netherlands and in the colonies all the way back in the 1600s, even before the formation of the Grand Lodge. But that is much more dicey. What we do know is that there were scattered, usually mostly Sephardic Jewish communities in England, the Netherlands, Germany, France, and also in North America and the Caribbean, and that a very large fraction of these men, not the majority certainly, but a large fraction of them also joined Masonic lodges. And some lodges were very welcoming and included many Jews. Some did not, some excluded Jews. But as happened with all these different communities, with African Americans, Native Americans, once some Jews were Masons, then even if they weren't welcome in some Masonic circles, they could simply form their own lodges. And by the 1780s, that was happening as well. There were Jewish-led and Jewish-founded lodges in, in the colonies and in London. In terms of what religious group had the largest concentrations of Freemasons among them, you probably would have to say it was Jews because this was you know, a small scattered population and basically anywhere that there was a sizable Jewish community in Western Europe or the colonies, there was a Masonic lodge. The relationship was more complicated and sometimes more strained when it came to Anabaptists and other more sort of radical nonconformists like Quakers and Baptists. So certainly some Quakers and Baptists did become Freemasons as well, including in some instances Baptist ministers. But it was much less common, and it seems there was more disapproval. You know, Quakers and Baptists put a lot of value on humility, on material simplicity. They often frowned on displays of wealth, and they 
tended to have a much more strained relationship with the ruling elites, to put it crudely, and with the Anglican Church. So there was more suspicion and more distance there, although, again, some Quakers and Baptists did become Masons. Now, of course, we have to talk about Catholics. So most of those countries that I talked about on the European continent, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, they also were majority Catholic countries. And the first lodges that formed in those countries tended to include a lot of Protestants. And in some instances, like in Portugal, they were primarily Protestant. But then it would spread among the Catholic population. Despite the fact that it was officially prohibited by the Catholic Church, nonetheless, it found an audience. And it found an audience particularly among heterodox Catholics, sort of marginal groups who were already anti-clerical or suspicious of the Catholic hierarchy. This included, for one thing, Jansenists in France, this large sort of not exactly illegal, but very marginal, pietistic, neo-Augustinian movement in France, which started in the 1600s and was to some degree suppressed, but really remained a significant presence in France in the 1700s. Also, quietists, a more sort of radical, offshoot, quasi-mystical Catholic group in France, and some of the prominent leaders and spokespersons of Freemasonry in France, such as the Jacobite exile Andrew Michael Ramsey, were quietists. And Ramsey served for a time as personal secretary to Madame de Guillon, who was the leader and founder of quietism. So in this way, there were, you could say, marginal or heterodox religious networks within the Catholic fold that also served as feeder networks for Freemasonry. Now, as for who was the most hostile, well, the, the Catholic Church did officially condemn Freemasonry, and it was persecuted, and I'll talk about that some later, it was persecuted in some Catholic countries. But in terms of sort of the grassroots, you know, lay believers, the, the religious communities that were most hostile to Masonry were Reformed Protestants, particularly Congregationalists, who were the heirs of the Puritan movement in Britain and the British colonies. So Presbyterians were, were very skeptical. Very few Presbyterians became Masons, but the most hostile tended to be Congregationalists. They saw Freemasonry as religiously suspect. They saw the ritualism and the secrecy as possible veils or covers for heresy. And it was just completely contrary to their whole religious sensibility. And many of them apparently saw Freemasonry as a kind of instrument for the Anglican Church. And, you know, many Reformed Protestants at this time were very kind of conspiratorial minded and suspicious of the power of the Church of England and the Episcopal hierarchy. And as an example, the very prolific author, Ezra Stiles, who was a Congregationalist minister in Newport, wrote in his journal in 1759 about the rise and popularity of Freemasonry in Newport. And he said that Newporters could see, quote, the spirit of Episcopal intrigue 
already working with great cunning. It has set up and recommended the fraternity of Freemasons and is pressing them apace into a subserviency and subordination to the great end of increasing the church. So basically, by the mid-18th century, you can see that Freemasonry was weaving its way through kind of interconnected networks of merchants, soldiers and sailors, writers, clergy, and particularly in this kind of marginal world of, of heterodox Catholics, Anglicans, and Jews, which in some cases could be, in some places was quite powerful, but in other cases was really controversial and marginal, especially where people were trying to protect a reformed Protestant establishment, such as in New England, where the Congregational Church was trying to maintain itself against inroads by Anglicanism. Okay, so that gives us a sort of rough social profile of what sort of people became Masons. But there's also a psychological profile. What kind of personality would become a Freemason? And what I found is that Masons tended to be strivers, sort of men of middling status, but of great ambition, and who were seeking out pathways for mobility. So it often appealed, in addition to soldiers and sailors who might want to move up in the ranks, it also appealed to sort of up-and-coming elites, not the ruling class so much. So if we look beyond the Grand Lodge of England in London, it's not usually the richest, most powerful men, the great landowners, the great wealthy merchants, the governors, ambassadors. Those are not usually the sort of people who became Masons. And sometimes the, that sort of true ruling elite would see Freemasonry as, as dangerous or as a threat, undermining their authority and prestige. So they tended to not be of the ultimate ruling class, but of the sort of upwardly mobile middling sort. And even when we look within families, Freemasons tended to be sort of what you could call second string men, a lot of younger sons and brothers who were not as prominent or not yet as prominent as their fathers or elder brothers and who did not stand to inherit patriarchal leadership of their clans. So I'll just read you a little passage again from my dissertation where I discuss what sort of people became Freemasons in Rhode Island, the, the main place that I focused on as my case study. So I wrote, quote, Those who joined the fraternity tended to be men who had something to gain and not too much to lose. The roles of Freemasonry in Rhode Island team with upwardly mobile merchants, tradesmen, and professionals, ambitious strivers with an eye on the horizon. Totally absent are the great merchant princes that held much of Rhode Island, not to mention North America and the West Indies, in thrall. Godfrey Malbone, David Cheesebro, John Bannister, Abraham Redwood, Aaron Lopez, Samuel and William Vernon. Nor does one see the political heavyweights that battled for the governorship, Stephen Hopkins, Samuel Ward, William Green, or Joseph Wanton Sr. Rather, one finds in the lodge these men's sons or younger brothers, who may have sought ways to move out of their familial patron's shadows. Not Godfrey Malbone, but his son, Francis Malbone. Not Aaron Lopez, but his nephew, David Lopez. Not Joseph Wanton Sr., but Joseph Wanton Jr. Not David Cheesebro, but his son-in-law, Alexander Grant. So that's the sort of pattern that 
definitely emerges when when I look at Rhode Island, and I think it really applies to other places around the world. And as for the occupations, so as the 18th century went on, Freemasonry spread not only among soldiers and sailors and merchants, as I've said, but also to growing professions and occupations, more specialized occupations that depended on a certain degree of trust in one's character and and reputation. So it was adopted more and more by minor shopkeepers and tavern keepers, and also by lettered professions. So you see more and more lawyers and doctors coming into lodges as cities and towns grow. And I'll read to you another little passage where I discuss the common industries that were more and more feeding into the Masonic lodges in the later 1700s. So I wrote, quote, The Masons' success rested on social diversification. Masonry in the 18th century was largely a maritime phenomenon, with merchants, sailors, and itinerant professionals carrying the craft to nodes on an Atlantic network. By 1804, maritime trade had become only one industry along several others, also beginning with M, in which Masons played a disproportionately large part. Metalworking, manufacturing, the military, medicine, and music. So by the late 1700s, you can see Freemasonry is really becoming a socially variegated picture in terms of class, occupation, religion, nationality. But a lot of you might be thinking and asking, well, but what about gender? What about women? Did any women become Masons? And if not, why not? Well, the question of why is very complicated and would require a whole other long lecture, which I actually once gave at a conference of the Society of Early Americanists, Why Did the Masons Exclude Women? But as for the question, did any women become Masons? The answer is yes, some women did become Masons, even quite early on. But it happened in different ways and under different conditions in different places. And it remained a minority movement. Still, most Masonic lodges around the world continue to be male only. So this question of can women become Masons, and if not, why not? This was a constant live issue for Freemasons. It's not something that they never thought of or that we would only think of today. It was a real live issue and sometimes debate at the time. And most lodges rejected the idea of initiating women, but there were significant exceptions. The earliest definite, well-documented, well-attested female Freemason was an Irish woman named Elizabeth St. Leger Aldworth, who was raised in an upper-class home at Doneral Court in County Cork, Ireland. And reportedly, she was initiated as a young woman in a lodge presided over by her father, who was a powerful, respected Irish lord and uh, landowner, who probably had the clout, if he wanted to, to insist, we're initiating my daughter. And it happened sometime between 1710 and 1712. So quite early on in the growth of masonry in Ireland and before even the existence of any Grand Lodge. So she was widely known and spoken about, listed in reports about masonry in Ireland. When she died in the 1770s, she was eulogized as the Lady Freemason. So this was just an openly known fact. But she was seen largely as an exception. 
right? She she was kind of the exception that proved the rule, you could say, right? She's the Lady Freemason because that was not normal, at least not in the English-speaking world, not in Ireland or Britain or the British Empire. But as I mentioned before, the picture was a bit different in continental Europe, and in many ways Freemasonry was spreading among kind of more radical, fringe, social and intellectual circles in continental Europe. And by the 1740s, there were so-called lodges of adoption organizing in France and the Low Countries. So these lodges of adoption were simply lodges that admitted women and men together on an ostensibly equal basis. And from there, it seems it spread shortly after into Germany. So by 1760 or so, there were many of these lodges of adoption in France, the Netherlands, and Germany. And many of these lodges had their own special practices, so-called rites of adoption, with their own ritual texts that often made reference to Eve in the book of Genesis and also especially to the Queen of Sheba. Many Masons, it seems, embraced the Queen of Sheba as a sort of symbol of female or gender equal Freemasonry. Masonic myths center on Solomon's temple and the wisdom of Solomon, while the Queen of Sheba in the Bible is described as an equally wise ruler who confronted and interacted with Solomon as an equal and who questioned him and tested his wisdom. So it seemed natural to refer to her in this sort of world of gender-inclusive Freemasonry. But although the, there were many of these lodges of adoption, they still, they remained only a minority, right? Most Masonic lodges, even in France and Germany, continued to be male only. Basically, the debate continued and has never gone away, right? This continues to be a question plaguing Freemasonry. Why are you male only? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? There also was the parallel issue as Freemasonry really grew and proliferated, especially in North America. There was this parallel question of why do you not admit African-Americans? And as I said, uh, some African-Americans beginning in Boston did get around this exclusion and form their own African lodge. And this African lodge then gave warrants, basically took on the role of a provincial grand lodge and started to give out its own warrants and charters for more black lodges in other towns such as Providence and Philadelphia and has formed its own distinct branch, as I said, Prince Hall Freemasonry. But right from the beginning, there was this question of if these lodges exist and these men are initiated Masons, why are they not accepted as fully equal and valid Masons by the white lodges? And that has continued to be a problem and a controversy right up to today, but that also is a subject for a whole other lecture. Okay, so thus far, I've been talking in kind of generalities about how Freemasonry functioned, how it spread from place to place, from group to group, throughout this broad world of Europe and Europe's colonies. However, as I've already hinted at, there were significant divides between the different groups and networks that Freemasonry appealed to in different countries and different societies. And this led to divergences and sometimes even schisms among different branches of Freemasonry that could take on a very different character. These different splits, I would say, tend to align. There's a sort of 
basic axis of difference between two different faces or two different sides of Freemasonry that sometimes could interact and cross-fertilize, but often were very divided and opposed. And these two basic forms or complexions of Freemasonry more or less emerge in the divide between the Protestant world and the Catholic world. Right? Different sorts of people become Masons and use Freemasonry in different ways in Britain and the Protestant countries and Protestant empires as opposed to in the Catholic world. And this divide between two different sort of sides or forms of Freemasonry really has its roots right from the beginning in Britain itself, because Britain is itself a divided country uh, with you know, radically different political valences and agendas in England as opposed to Scotland, in London as opposed to the outer shires, and in the continuing divide between Protestant and Catholic. There was a significant Catholic minority in Britain, and Freemasonry has always been closely connected to Catholicism within Britain. So there's a split that you can see forming really early on, right when Freemasonry emerges and takes off as a social movement. And that split, you could say, recreates itself, reproduces itself in different forms as Freemasonry then spreads abroad. So this sort of dividing line in Masonry begins, I would say, really as soon as the craft gets royal patronage in Scotland. Right. So Freemasonry has a deep strain of royalism. There's a heavy emphasis on the importance and the sanctity of kings and kingship, This the centering of King Solomon and Solomon's temple. And Masons all through the 17th and 18th centuries would refer to Freemasonry as the royal art. And the words royal and king are used repeatedly all through Anderson's constitutions. So there's this great emphasis on royalism and there's social and political connections to the Stuart dynasty, which ruled in Scotland at the time when the Masons first got royal patronage through William Shaw, the King's Master of Works, and it continues on, I would say, all through the 18th century. There is a very powerful and persistent link between Freemasonry and Jacobitism, right? the political party that supported the Stuart dynasty, the, the dynasty that had first given royal patronage and prestige to the Masons. So initially, if we look up till about 1710 or so in this early period when Freemasonry is gradually growing and evolving in Scotland and spreading southward into England, it is very much linked to royalism, to the Stuart court, and to the, the high gentry, which tends to be high Tory or even Jacobite in its political leanings after 1688. So most of the early prominent Masons that we know of, such as Elias Ashmole and Robert Murray, who were natural philosophers, Ashmole, you may know, was at Oxford and founded the Ashmolean Museum. These early prominent Masons in the 1600s were royalists and took the royal side in the 
Civil War. Ashmole, in addition to being an active Mason, he also wrote the history and rituals and constitutions of the Order of the Garter, the sort of most prestigious uh, chivalric order created and patronized by the king. The first big center of Masonic activity that we know of in England, where there was a long-lasting and prominent Masonic lodge, was at York. York was also a center of royalism, and the so-called Old Lodge at York was made up largely of the Jacobite gentry of Yorkshire, including Catholics and high church Anglicans. So basically, if we, if we look at where Freemasonry was, who it was recruiting, what sort of ideas it was propagating before 1717, we would have to say it was largely a royalist, Scottish and Northern English Jacobite movement. This fact is easily forgotten or papered over if you just begin your Masonic histories at 1717 and the formation of the Grand Lodge in London, which is what academic historians tend to do. They sort of ignore everything before that moment, and they just assume that Freemasonry is defined by the Grand Lodge in London. And the social makeup and the sort of social and political complexion of the London Grand Lodge is extremely different. It's packed full of Whigs who are closely linked to the Hanover dynasty, the the Protestant royal dynasty that had been brought in specifically to exclude the Stuarts. So the emphasis on royalism really carries over from the older sort of northern uh, Stuart-connected Freemasonry. It's carried over, but it's transferred to this new loyalty of, of Whiggism and Hanoverianism. And this is exemplified by people like John Anderson, the author of The Constitutions of the Freemasons, published in 1723, who was a Whig and a Presbyterian, but who also was fervently royalist, wrote his magnum opus was not The Constitutions of the Freemasons. It was a long book on royal genealogies, trying to trace the ancestry of every king and prince throughout the world back to Adam. But this group, although they were equally royalist, they really wanted to dissociate themselves and dissociate Freemasonry from Jacobitism, which was seen as dangerous and disloyal. So they form this Grand Lodge in 1717, just two years after the massive Jacobite uprising of 1715. So there's clearly pressure here as Freemasonry grows to establish that it is loyal, it is not conspiratorial, it is not Jacobite, but rather it is a safe entity in the new Whig Hanoverian governing order centered in London. You can see right away from the beginning there's this divide between two different kind of faces and characters of Freemasonry, sort of the firmly Protestant Whig Hanoverian leading clique in London, and this, I would say, older and more deeply rooted Jacobite, Catholic, and High Church Anglican network in Scotland and Northern England. And this divide continues and shows up in different forms as the years go on, both within Britain. So if you read academic histories of Freemasonry, as I said, they tend to just automatically start with 1717, and then the first point where they acknowledge that there is a split or a schism in Freemasonry is when 
A second rival Grand Lodge of England forms in 1752, which calls itself the Ancient Grand Lodge of England. And that's certainly a significant moment, but as should be clear, it's not really a new phenomenon. I would say it's just a new development, a recapitulation of the same divide that already existed for generations earlier. So in 1752, Irish, mostly Irish Protestant migrants in London form a rival Grand Lodge, which they call the Ancient Grand Lodge. A lot of these Irish Protestants are Jacobites, and this group claims, whether rightly or wrongly, they claim to represent the revival of an older, more authentic Freemasonry that predates the Grand Lodge of London created in 1717. So they call themselves ancients, and they derisively label the already existing Grand Lodge as modern. Right? So modern, in their view, is bad. It means corruption of the true ancient Masonic tradition. And they set themselves up as a rival and as supposedly more legitimate than the existing Grand Lodge. And there are small distinctions really minute distinctions in the ritual text and procedure that they use to initiate men as opposed to the so-called modern Grand Lodge and their lodges that use Anderson's constitutions. But shortly after the creation of this ancient Grand Lodge, their secretary, Lawrence Dermott, puts forward an alternative rival handbook and ritual procedures in a book called Ahiman Razan. And this ancient Grand Lodge then starts doing the same thing that the Modern's Grand Lodge and the Grand Lodges of Ireland and Scotland are doing. They start to issue warrants and charters to more lodges around Britain and abroad in the colonies. And you get this rivalry, this long-lasting rivalry between the ancient and modern Masonic networks. The ancients, clearly part of the reason why this rival branch emerged and spread is that they also had a different class makeup. So they included and recruited many men of lower social status, uh, craftsmen, ordinary soldiers and sailors, and also a lot of Irish. They didn't have the same sort of prestigious gentlemanly appearance that most of the modern lodges tended to take on, with exceptions. Right, the Both branches, the ancient and the modern, were uh, heterogeneous in their different ways, and they both involved men of different social standing and status. But by and large, the ancients tended to be more kind of populist and more egalitarian in in their rhetoric and their governance, whereas the moderns, in comparison, were more elitist. This does not mean that the ancients didn't want patronage from prestigious aristocratic men. They sought out patronage just the same as the moderns did, and they obtained it for a while in the late 1700s. They were formally patronized by the Dukes of Athol, who were prominent Scottish Catholic Jacobite nobles. So while there is this difference in, in class makeup, there's also this continuing persistent split that you can see, again, between the more Protestant and the more Catholic, the more Whig and the more Jacobite, and also the more English as opposed to those from 
the outer counties and Scotland and Ireland. And those these, this, these two different faces of masonry now are more formalized and visible in the form of the ancients and the moderns. And as I said, ancient masonry also spreads and competes abroad in the colonies. And this helps to further spur and accelerate the growth and organization of Freemasonry. Because if an ancient lodge, say for instance, shows up in some colony, this signals to the moderns that they've got company, right? (laughs) There's a rival on the scene that they might have to compete with for recruits, for money, and for patronage. And so it would spur on the moderns to also recruit more people, reach into new social groups, and create more lodges. And a great example I saw of this is in Jamaica. And Jamaica is the other main region that I researched for my dissertation alongside Rhode Island. And Jamaica became, for a time, for a period, it was really the biggest center of Masonic activity in the Americas, although that did not last for many reasons. But if we look at Jamaica, the first known lodge with a charter that we know of was the Mother Lodge at Kingston, which formed in 1739 and got its charter from the Grand Lodge in London. And through the 1740s and 50s, it was slowly followed by a few other lodges around the island at Port Royal, Spanish Town, and Port Maria. And then in 1760, there also a lodge was formed among Scottish colonists at Morant Bay, and it got a charter from the Grand Lodge of Scotland. So, so far, you can see this is sort of a normal pattern, right? Bit by bit, lodges show up. They get charters from London or occasionally from Scotland or Ireland. But then the real boom began several years later. So in 1763, an ancient lodge with a charter from the ancient Grand Lodge of England was formed at Old Harbor. And Old Harbor is pretty far away from Kingston. And probably these ancient Rite masons were avoiding direct competition with the existing modern Rite lodges in Kingston, especially the Mother Lodge, which was very large and prestigious and powerful. So it starts off as a sort of low-level kind of Cold War rivalry. But then in the 1770s, Freemasonry explodes in Jamaica. And it's clear that the moderns saw the threat from the appearance of ancient Rite masonry in Jamaica, And they started to aggressively recruit hundreds of more men into the lodges and to create more lodges, both in Kingston and the other outlying islands. So eight new lodges were created just between 1770 and 72. One of them was in another ancient lodge at Green Island. The other seven were all modern right. And of those seven, four were in Kingston and three others were in other towns around the island. So there's a sort of scramble of expansion. And particularly in Kingston, it seems that the moderns were probably afraid that the ancients were going to make inroads into that capital city of Jamaica, and they sort of went into a frenzy of expansion. So by 1773, there are now five lodges just in Kingston alone, a town of only about ten or 11,000 people, of whom only a minority were white men. So this is really a remarkable and unprecedented 
level of saturation where now uh, there are several different lodges that you can choose from within just this one colonial town. And I think you can see here the ancient modern rivalry combined to sort of explode Freemasonry, especially in these colonial port towns. Now, also, as we know, Freemasonry was spreading not only in Britain and the British Empire, but it was spreading more and more into continental Europe and into other colonies like the French and Dutch colonies. And the Catholic Church, as I mentioned, officially condemned Freemasonry. So in this way, the situation was a bit different. Now, I should make clear here, Freemasonry was considered suspect, and it was highly controversial everywhere that it existed. Although Masons did seek out and obtain high status and even royal patronage, especially in Britain, it still was seen as possibly dangerous and possibly subversive everywhere that it existed. It's just that the threats came in different ways from different quarters in different countries. So in Protestant countries, especially in Britain, the danger came from popular suspicion, from the popular press, which was very active and often very sensational and paranoid. And it came also, as I said before, from reformed Protestants like Congregationalists and Presbyterians who saw Freemasonry as especially inimical to their beliefs. So I'll read to you again a passage from my dissertation where I discuss the sort of ambient atmosphere of anti-Masonry that was pervasive in Britain and the British colonies, just to give you a picture of what this was like. So I wrote, quote, Wherever the fraternity emerged onto the public scene, a cloud of suspicion and hostility hovered around it. As the Lodge's ritual practices developed in Scotland in the 17th century, outsiders often associated them with witchcraft or demonism. A Scottish minister reported in 1696 that residents of his parish believed that when a local mason took the mason word, quote, he devoted his first child to the devil. The English were susceptible to similar fears. The earliest known anti-Masonic pamphlet printed in London in 1698 warned all godly people that Masons are, quote, the Antichrist, which was to come leading them from fear of God. These diabolical associations apparently persisted at least into the early 18th century, with one brother writing to the London Grand Lodge in 1738 to lament the common prejudice that the Masons, quote, raise the devil in a circle. So basically, in the English-speaking world, there was comparatively less state involvement in matters of belief. There was no permanent inquisition. There was also a much freer and more prolific press. And so in the English-speaking world, when Freemasons wanted to deal with criticism and opposition, the main strategy was to put forward their own messages, to print their own letters, books, pamphlets, to seek out respected patrons from the royal court or government or the military or even the clergy, and to sort of cement themselves as a respectable, non-threatening institution in British society. The situation was very different and in some ways sort of the opposite in the Catholic world. So in the Catholic world, Freemasonry is officially condemned, and in all Catholic countries by 1740, it is formally illegal. 
This is also true, as I mentioned, in the Ottoman Empire after it's condemned in 1748. So there's kind of no way for Freemasonry to come out of the closet and address its critics openly, as was done in the English-speaking world. So in places like France, Spain, Italy, once Freemasonry makes certain inroads, it can only spread and survive by recruiting people who are willing to break the law or flout, at least flout ecclesiastical bans and do something that the church considered officially to be heretical. And so it had to seek out much more oppositional and dissident networks. So Freemasonry pretty quickly takes on a kind of radical and even subversive character so the papacy officially condemns Freemasonry in 1738, and this means that from that point onward, it is officially subject to the jurisdiction of the Inquisition in all countries where a holy office of Inquisition existed. That doesn't mean that every Catholic Mason was subject to be dragged before the Inquisition. There was no Inquisition office, for instance, in France. But there were still holy offices in Italy, Spain, and Portugal. And in the 1700s, the Portuguese Inquisition actually became particularly active and aggressive. They were rooting out initially remaining crypto-Jews in Portugal. And then as time went on, they turned their attention more and more towards Freemasonry. And this led to a very famous and sort of sensational cause celebre in the Masonic world, which was the case of John Custos. So John Custos was a Swiss-born merchant who lived for a time in England and joined a Masonic lodge in London. And then from there, he went to Lisbon, which was not uncommon. Britain and Portugal were allies and trading partners. So he went to Lisbon, and in the early 1740s, he helped to form a secretive Masonic lodge composed largely of expatriates from different places in Europe, but also some local Portuguese Catholics. He was arrested and questioned by the Inquisition. In 1744, he was released due to British diplomatic intervention, possibly partly because of the growing influence and prestige of Freemasonry in, in London. And he went back to Britain, and in 1746, he had a book published called The Unparalleled Sufferings of John Custos about his imprisonment and torture and interrogation by the Inquisition, which in his account sought to uncover the Masonic ritual secrets. So this book, Unparalleled Sufferings of John Custos, was very significant for one thing because it helped to present Freemasons as co-victims of the Inquisition and co-victims of Catholic and Papal persecution alongside Protestants. People didn't so much in, in Britain and Protestant Europe, people did not think of the Inquisition particularly as a body that victimized Jews, the way we tend to talk about it today. They thought it was evil and nefarious because it persecuted Protestants. Well, after the case of John Custos, more and more the sort of literate intellectual gentry in Northern Europe also starts to see Freemasonry as an unfairly persecuted group that were co-victims alongside Protestants. And it also became controversial in Portugal itself, although we don't know a lot because there wasn't as free a press in Portugal 
it was a point of controversy. It did have defenders and, and advocates in Portugal. And several years later, after the Great Lisbon earthquake of 1755, the Secretary of State, the Marques de Pombal, took over the Portuguese government and oversaw the recovery and basically became the de facto ruler of Portugal. And he was a Freemason. And he naturally enough legalized Freemasonry and it was tolerated in Portugal for several decades, although eventually it started to be persecuted again by the Inquisition after Pombal died. So Portugal, you could say, was sort of the first flashpoint where this issue of Freemasonry, would it be tolerated? Would it be defended? Would allies come forward? Portugal was the first flashpoint of this, but similar episodes happened over and over again in Spain and Italy and also in Germany and Austria. And masonry became popular in Bavaria, in, in the Catholic regions of southern Germany and in Vienna under Habsburg rule. And there were many small incidents, although they were not persecuted as aggressively and violently as they were in Portugal under the Inquisition. There were many sort of high-profile scandals and episodes, like in 1785, the elector of Bavaria decreed that no royal officials could be Masons. And his expectation was simply that all of the sort of royal servants at his court and in his government would would resign from Freemasonry because it was heretical and illegal. But actually, a prominent public servant, Ignaz von Born, who was the director of the Academy of Sciences of Bavaria, resigned from his position rather than give up Freemasonry. So when push came to shove, he chose Masonry. And this is an example of the sort of social tug of war going on in much of Catholic Europe over the legitimacy and acceptability of masonry. And this Ignaz von Born is often taken to be, is hypothesized to be the model of Sarastro, the sun priest philosopher king in Mozart's The Magic Flute, which he wrote in Vienna. So there were many results and ramifications of this split between the more kind of underground, controversial, often heterodox, oppositional Freemasonry in Catholic Europe and the Catholic colonies, as compared to the more licit, more accepted Masonry in Protestant Europe and the British Empire. For one thing, in the Catholic world, Masonry, as I said, it's more underground. It attracts many more radicals and dissenters, some of whom even uh, espouse very radical officially heretical religious points of view like skepticism or pantheism, Spinozism, as it was called at the time. And it comes to be associated, even among those who are attracted to it and join it, it comes to be associated with these sort of radical and heretical ideas coming from Britain or from uh, underground networks within Catholic Europe. And uh, it happens that the most prominent scholar of Freemasonry in Europe, Margaret Jacob, her first book was called The Radical Enlightenment. And it actually explored these sort of fringe networks of pantheists, Spinozists, Republican revolutionaries, and Freemasons. And, you know, it's a very good book, although I would say I think she mistakenly uh, takes this sort of aspect uh, this more radical aspect of 
Freemasonry in Catholic Europe and generalizes it to a description of all Freemasonry as such, that Masonry was somehow inherently democratic, republican, religiously skeptical, etc. And that, I would say, is not true. Freemasonry naturally also, because it attracted so many of these radical networks, it also gave rise then to offshoots, to groups that in some ways were too radical or maybe too dangerous to be accepted in the broader fold of Freemasonry and then sometimes hived off and created various short-lived sort of you know, radical oppositional or conspiratorial sects. And the most famous example of that, of course, is the Bavarian Illuminati, which were the, the longest lasting of these kind of radical paramasonic masonry-like offshoot groups and which formed uh, in Bavaria beginning in 1776 and persisted for several decades into the early 1800s. And since that time, since the late 1700s, it's been common for many people to sort of confuse the Illuminati with Freemasonry in general. And they're not the same thing, although in some ways the Illuminati were borrowing a lot of the practices, ideas, institutional forms from Freemasonry. Now, another significant difference between Freemasonry and the Protestant and Catholic worlds that's very important to historians, it may not have made such a big difference at the time, but it's important for historians today, is the difference in the keeping of records and the survival of records. So in the English-speaking world, it was commonly expected that lodges should keep minutes of their meetings, their initiations, their correspondence. They should keep in regular contact with the Grand Lodge. Not all lodges did this. You know, some were just too disorganized, or didn't have the resources. Some of them lost their records. They, you know, a ship that sank or a, a, a library that burned down. So the records are spotty, but there are quite a lot of them. And some, such as the lodges in Jamaica, I was never able to see their internal records because those have been lost through the years. But I at least was able to look at their correspondence that they sent to the Grand Lodge in London. And those have been preserved and give us good information. So there's really quite a lot that you can say about Freemasonry in Britain and the British Empire, and also to some degree the Netherlands and the Dutch Empire because of the abundance of records. It's very different in continental Europe and especially in the Catholic countries. Freemasonry was illegal. So you had to have a certain degree of chutzpah to actually write down <laughs> where and when you were holding meetings and who was attending. And a lot of the information that we have about who was a Mason actually comes from state records of arrests and investigations or inquisition records, which might be more or less reliable. And the, as for the internal lodge records of these countries, there's more surviving from Northern Europe, from places like the Netherlands or Sweden, than there are from Spain or Portugal or Italy. But there are some. There were some log books. There were some books of correspondence that were maintained at some lodges in continental Europe. And it's very difficult, even for those that survive, it's very difficult to get access to most of them. For one thing, lodges might have them in their possession, but they might be very defensive and protective because Freemasonry is still quite controversial in many places like France and Italy. So they might be quite reticent to just open up to scholars and show what they have. In addition, many of the lodges around continental Europe don't have their records. Even if they kept them, 
They no longer have them, and they're not easy to access. Where are they? They're in a state-controlled archive in Moscow, Russia. Why are they there? They're there because during the Second World War, the Nazis viewed Freemasonry as a heretical, Jewish-controlled, dangerous, subversive conspiracy. They shut down Masonic lodges and Grand Lodges in all the countries that they occupied. They often raided lodge buildings, and they seized whatever records they could find and collected them back in Berlin in the Gestapo archives. And it happens that after the war was over, that zone of Berlin was occupied by the Soviets, and the Soviet government saw fit to transfer those Nazi and Gestapo archives to Moscow. Fairly natural thing to do, but a result was that scholars in the rest of the world outside the Soviet Union couldn't get access, and neither could Masons themselves, who may have wanted to get back those ledgers and papers from their lodges. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian government has opened up to the idea of giving, of returning records to Masonic bodies or of allowing scholars to view them, but it's still often quite difficult and complicated to get access nonetheless. So basically, a result of this is that what we do know about Freemasonry in Catholic Europe is much more sketchy. And a lot of suppositions and ideas and even, you know, popular rumors and myths about Freemasonry in Europe are allowed to proliferate. And it's very hard to test them against the written record, against the surviving evidence. Okay, so a final result or upshot that we should understand about this divide between Freemasonry in the Protestant and Catholic worlds is that... A very important development in Freemasonry that elaborated on and expanded on the myths and rituals of the craft, which is the higher degrees, this new development happened in the Catholic world. That's where it grew out of. That's where it took new meanings and, and created new practices. And it eventually crossed over into the Protestant world. But it was at first a creation of these largely Jacobite Catholic networks connecting Masons in the British Isles and Europe. So as I said before in my last lecture, I won't get into the deep gory details, but basically all lodges around the world practice three basic universal degrees of initiation, apprentice, fellow craft, and master. Some masons, if they want, can choose to go on and do higher degrees and learn more mythology, more esoteric symbolism, and go through these, these elaborate rituals if they want to. The creation of higher degrees started initially with a degree called the Royal Arch, and it then expanded to more, a whole variety of degrees, which tend to be chivalric. They tend to involve references to knighthood, and they're called things like Knight of the Sun or Knight of the East and West, and so on. And these higher degrees were created mainly among these sort of radical oppositional underground networks with links to the British Jacobite diaspora. And so the Royal Arch, the first higher degree, was created in either Ireland or France. We don't know for certain. 
in the 1740s. But even if we don't know exactly when and where it started, it clearly was being practiced at the British Jacobite court in exile at Saint-Germain near Paris. And from there, the Royal Arch and other higher degrees spread into France, especially into southwestern France, an area that had long been a sort of hotbed of mystical and esoteric heterodoxy. Higher degree lodges, which tended to be called Écossais or Scottish lodges, ones that conferred these, these higher degrees, formed in Bordeaux, which was a major port town in southwestern France, and from there they spread to the French West Indies. And it seems that these higher degrees, as I said, they they sprung from these sort of larger Anglo-Irish-French Jacobite networks, which brought together various sorts of dissenters from the British Isles and France, and included a lot of British Catholics, as well as French Jansenists and some French Protestants. There was a remaining Huguenot Protestant population in southwestern France. And it seems that one particular person was crucial in the spread of these higher degrees. And his name was Etienne Morin. And he was born and raised in Cahors, which was a small village in southwestern France. His father was imprisoned as a Jansenist. He became a merchant at Bordeaux. And at Bordeaux, he helped to organize these various higher degrees into a 25-degree sequence called the Rite of Perfection. He then brought this Rite of Perfection to the French Caribbean and introduced it in colonies, particularly starting with Martinique. He also had British and Dutch friends and contacts in the Caribbean. And towards the end of his life in the 1770s, he went to Jamaica, naturally enough, which was a center of trade and also by this time a booming center of Freemasonry. And he set up a sort of governing body, a Council of Knights of the Sun in Kingston to oversee the spread of these higher degrees, basically similar to how the Grand Lodges had been formed to to oversee and legitimize the growth of Masonry so this Council of Knights would sort of govern the higher degrees. And from Kingston, it seems the right of perfection then spread to particular colonial towns in North America, such as New Orleans, which was a French Catholic colonial town, and also to Albany in New York and Newport in Rhode Island. And it sort of little by little spread among this same sort of network, right, of Catholics, especially heterodox Catholics, Jews, Anglicans, Quakers, And it started to bleed across, you could say, these boundaries between the Catholic Masonic sphere and the Protestant Masonic sphere. It also continued to spread in the French Caribbean. And eventually, I won't get into the details of this, but basically after the Haitian Revolution, when many French Masons fled from the Caribbean to North America, eventually these various higher degree Masons of different backgrounds, British, French, Dutch, Jewish, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, expanded on and regularized and published a book explaining this higher degree system, which they renamed as the Scottish Rite. So that's, that's the beginning of what we now call Scottish Rite in Charleston in 1801. So it's important for one thing to note that the Scottish Rite did not begin from Scotland, right? It began from this kind of 
strange hodgepodge interreligious network in France and the West Indies. But from very early on, Masons who took part in this higher degree system thought of it as Scottish. And they used, like in Bordeaux, they called these higher degree lodges Écossais, Scottish, even though there was no particular connection to Scotland. Now, the reason that Freemasonry is famous today in the popular mind, and the first thing that many people think of and and ask about when they talk about Freemasonry is its involvement in revolutions, in the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And Freemasonry was connected and did play a role in this age of revolutions, certainly starting with the American Revolution. But it's complicated and nuanced, and I can't get into the details of that just now. That's another massive uh, subject. But just in brief, I'll point out that when Freemasonry does come into play and have an impact in that age of revolutions from 1775 up through the Spanish-American revolutions in the 1800s, it's usually because it somehow managed to bring together particular social and political groups that didn't otherwise have much in common. And one of the remarkable things about this wave of democratic or quasi-democratic revolutions in the late 1700s and the early 1800s is that it spread really uncontrollably across the divide between Catholic and Protestant. And as I've been saying, Freemasonry laid foundations and found constituencies to draw on in both the Protestant and Catholic worlds, but in slightly different ways. And these two branches of Masonry for a long time had very little contact with one another. But it was higher degree Masonry that started to bridge that gap and create contacts and relationships across these traditional divides of religion and language. Often the significance of masonry in that age comes from that possibility for cross-fertilization and network building and even alliance building between these different constituent groups. And this could often allow for further cross-fertilization of older and newer radical ideas. So, for instance, the sort of... uh, Jacobite and radical Whig fringe in Britain could come into contact with these people like Republicans, pantheists, or just sort of general reformers in Catholic Europe, including France. And you can see instances of this and how it could feed in then to revolutionism from pretty early on. For example, George Washington, whom we all know for his involvement in the American Revolution, he was an active Freemason, and he was initiated at the Fredericksburg Lodge in Virginia. And this Fredericksburg Lodge was interesting and distinctive. For one thing, it didn't have any particular charter or warrant from any Grand Lodge, and we don't know much about who set it up or what kind of authority they claimed. But we do know it's the first lodge in the Americas that has any surviving record of conferring the Royal Arch degree. 
So somehow those higher degrees that had come out of that kind of Jacobite Franco-Britannic network in France and the Caribbean, somehow it made its way to this lodge in Fredericksburg by the time George Washington was initiated. And the worshipful master who presided over this lodge when Washington was initiated was a physician, a Scottish physician named Hugh Mercer, who was from Scotland and had served the Jacobite forces in the 1745 uprising before then leaving and going to Virginia. So somehow there's, there's already an apparent connection forming here between older net networks of Jacobite masons from Scotland and from this higher degree network and this sort of rising gentry class in North America that then would supply much of the leaders of the American Revolution. Now, you may also know that France actually became an ally of the United States and helped the U.S. to achieve independence from Britain, which in many ways was a very shocking development at the time because France was a Catholic power. It was the traditional enemy and really boogeyman of the British North American colonies. They had just fought the Seven Years' War against the French. So it was a very shocking development, but I would argue that the way was paved partly because of these shared ideas and affinities from Freemasonry, and it allowed for a closer working cooperation between France and the British American colonists, and the higher degrees played a role in this. So one of the earliest lodges in America that practiced the higher degrees and that became sort of a center for, for the spread of the rite of perfection through America was at Newport in Rhode Island. And it was a lodge called King David's Lodge that was founded and mainly governed by Jews. The founding worshipful master was a Jewish merchant named Moses Michael Hayes. And this lodge began operating in Newport in 1780, right at the time when the French expeditionary force was on its way to Newport to take up to be quartered in Newport and coordinate with the American forces to try to rout the British in Virginia. And so this lodge was there in Newport. It included Anglicans, Jews, Quakers. It practiced the higher degree rite of perfection. And once the French expeditionary force came, several French officers joined the lodge and became lodge brothers of these various American revolutionaries. A lot of the French officials and officers, when they were stationed in Rhode Island between 1780 and 81, they were really struck by the enthusiasm and the passion of Masons and the way it was practiced quite publicly and openly in British North America, as opposed to being underground in France. And some of these French officers from this kind of bureaucratic elite in France formed relationships with the Americans through Freemasonry. The French commissary of the French expeditionary force named Claude Blanchard, he kept a detailed journal of his time in America. And there's a wonderful passage from his journal from December 1780, where he describes seeing 
the St. John the Evangelist's Day Masonic procession through Providence. And he writes, quote, There was a meeting of Masons at Providence. It was announced in the public papers, for societies of this sort are authorized. I met in the streets of Providence a company of these Freemasons, going two by two, holding each other's hands, all dressed with their aprons, and preceded by two men who carried long staves. He who brought up the rear, and who was probably the master, had two brethren alongside of him, and all three wore ribbons around their necks, like ecclesiastics who have the blue ribbon. So he's remarking, look at the how openly these Masons can take on these pretensions, as if they were as prestigious or powerful as the clergy in France. And he's really impressed by it and was clearly very curious. So it's perhaps not shocking that just about six weeks later, Blanchard himself also became a Mason. And in his journal entry for February 7th, 1781, he writes, quote, Monsieur de Jumacourt, an officer of artillery, and Monsieur Pisançon, my secretary, both very zealous Freemasons, conferred on me the grade of apprentice, and in the evening I was at an American lodge, where I was present at two receptions. I was then nearly 39 years old. This was beginning rather late. So there's so much that's so wonderful packed into this little note in Blanchard's journal. For one thing, he's saying, sort of self-deprecatingly, I'm a bit old to be getting into this at 39. It was more normal for men to become Masons in their 20s. That was most often the case. Once you had some sort of occupation and income, once you were of marriageable age, you could then be accepted into a lodge. And so it was usually 20s or early 30s. So he probably felt a bit old. <laughs> he also describes who specifically initiated him, and they are his subordinates, right? An officer of artillery and his secretary, Pisançon, and he describes them as zealous Freemasons. They were passionate about it, and they persuaded their superior, Blanchard, to join the lodge as well, just in this same sort of pattern that I'm talking about. And immediately after becoming an apprentice, he says, in that same day, he then attends an American lodge where he witnesses Americans being initiated. So I think it's this wonderful illustration of how very quickly social connections could be built and alliances like the French-American alliance could be undergirded now by the Masonic tie in the same way that business relationships and family relationships between in-laws could be sort of sealed by Masonic Brotherhood. And that's where I think it plays a really significant role then in the age of revolutions, although it is not as simple as many people think. The Masons certainly did not plot or plan out any revolutions. It's not a, a political conspiracy, but it did play a significant role in making the sort of rolling wave of revolutions possible. So I'll leave that off till later, uh, but I hope this gives you a picture of how and why Freemasonry rose to become this powerful worldwide institution by 1789. And again, if you can help to keep these lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page and you can have access to all of my myths of the month, including my last one about the Founding Fathers. Thank you.